This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. We did not get a good recording of the sermon on Tuesday night because of our technical difficulties. So I'm recording it for you now from my computer. If you've been around RUF at all in the past, you've heard me quote this before. Alistair McIntyre, who's a prominent 20th century Scottish philosopher, wrote in his seminal book, After Virtue, he wrote this. He said, in order for us to answer the question, what am I supposed to do? I I first must answer the question of what story or stories do I find myself in? Here's what McIntyre's doing. He's discovered and he's argued at an academic level that all of us live narratival lives. All of our lives take the shape of a story. Now we get this. We love stories. When we watch movies or read books that we love, we find ourselves imagining ourselves inside those stories. I remember being a kid playing with my action figures on the basement carpet watching Star Wars, imagining that I was in the movie. And right now, George, our three-year-old, runs around the house dressed up as Batman. He is inside that story, pretending to be Batman. And whether or not we admit this, we still do this as adults. This fall, I was in a conversation with someone my age, with advanced degrees, whom I respect, And this was right after the first vaccine was approved, and we were talking about whether or not we're going to get the vaccine, and she said, you know, that's how all zombie movies start. There's a pandemic, then there's a vaccine, and then the government puts someone thing in a shot, and everyone becomes a zombie. And I was like, you can't be serious. And she was. She was so engrossed in the narratives of zombie movies that they colored how she saw reality. To go back to McIntyre's quote, To answer the question, should I get the vaccine, which is a legitimate question, she was answering, the story that I am in is probably a zombie movie. So no. Now that wasn't a logical decision. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it's at a precognitive level. She was operating out of a story that was serving as the interpretive grid for her decision making. And all of us do this. This semester, we're studying the minor prophets together. And to introduce our prophet this week, Hosea, I want to name two of the operative, two of the narratives, two common stories that I see us operating out of as our interpretive grid for our decisions. Let's call these two narratives tragedy and triumph. The, na- the narrative of tragedy says everything is getting worse. Even if it does get better, it will actually just be worse. And the narrative of triumph says everything is and will get better. And even if it does get worse, there's always a silver lining. For some of us, the world in the future is a glass half full. Everything is good and is getting better. Everyone is going to get the vaccine. Everything will be awesome all the time. And so we answer the question, what story am I in? By saying it's a story of triumph. And then that becomes our grid for making decisions. For example, if you're someone who lives out of the story of triumph and you get bad news, you are more likely to avoid it. Push away the pain not let yourself be sad. Positive vibes only. If you're unaware of this, your positivity will become toxic to you and those around you. For others of us, the world in the future is a glass half empty. Everything is horrible and is only getting worse. The vaccine will turn us into zombies. And so by answering the question, what story am I in, by saying it's a story of tragedy, then that's how we figure out how we are to act, how we're to make decisions.
For example, if you're someone who lives out the, sto- out the story of tragedy and you get good news, you're more likely to act like there's a catch, to deny that you're worth it, be suspicious of gifts, not to let yourself celebrate good things. And if you're unaware of this, then your negativity will become toxic to you and to those around you. Do you see these at work in your life and in the lives of your friends? Of course you do. They stand out, especially in times like these, especially during a week like this one. We're going to turn our attention to Hosea now, and the book of Hosea tells a true story. It is one of the most extraordinary, most disturbing, most comforting books in the whole Bible, and it's full of both tragedy and triumph. And I want to give you a little background information to help you make sense of this book. In 1000 BC, David was coronated as king of Israel and united the 12 tribes under his leadership. But after his death and the death of his son Solomon in 930 BC, the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The books of Samuel, Chronicles, and Kings cover the history of this time. And it's during this time that the minor prophets are active, acting as God's lawyers and God's mouthpieces to his people. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. He lived during the same time as the prophets Isaiah and Amos. And much like today, these two narratives, triumph and tragedy, were very apparent in the lives of the Israelites. Much like the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities, you could say it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was an age of luxurious materialism, of apparent religious devotion activity, and national security. At the same time, people's hearts were empty, religion was shallow, and corruption was rampant. And it's in the midst of this that God sends the prophet Hosea to show his people that there is a better and truer story of the world, that the truest story of the world isn't a story of tragedy. It isn't even a story of triumph. It's a story of marriage. So God comes to Hosea and tells her that he wants to set him up with a girl. Her name is Gomer, and she's a whore. Now, our translation reads that she is a woman of whoredom, which means that she's sexually promiscuous. And the Hebrew word has connotations of pagan worship. So it's saying that she's not only a whore, but that she's using her sexuality to worship pagan gods. The first three chapters, Gomer is presented to us as a train wreck. She's defenseless against her passions. Even after she marries Hosea, she continues to sleep around. While they're married, she has three children, one of which is not Hosea's, and they name that child Lo-Ami, which is Hebrew for not mine. This is just the beginning of the story. I just want to pause here and ask the question, how does this sit with you? In the American church, we have so deeply entangled God's will, quote-unquote, with our own happiness and success. We act like God is mostly interested in blessing our happy Instagram-perfect life. I want you to hear what's happening in this story. God calls a man, presumably a good Christian guy, to go marry a prostitute, and she keeps on being unfaithful, and everyone knows it, and this is God's will for Hosea's life. God doesn't call him to live his best life now, but to do this. And now, I'm not saying that God is going to call you to a life like this, but I am saying your theology needs to have a category for this. God does this on purpose. And if this is making you uncomfortable, then that means you're paying attention. In chapter two, Gomer leaves Hosea for a series of men. One after the other, they use her and then leave her. And the final man she is with abuses her. And eventually she ends up in slavery. Gomer must have been beautiful and charming, but 
but her desires were so shallow. We're told she left Hosea for pleasure for pleasure and the material things she imagined her lovers could give her. She valued these things over her husband and his love, and her life goes steadily downhill. Chapter 2 chronicles Gomer sliding lower and lower on the social scale of the city of Samaria until she's living with a man who can't take care of her. She's hungry, clothed in rags, and ultimately she has to sell herself into slavery to cover her debts. Friends, it doesn't get any lower than this. And Hosea watches the whole thing. The wife he loves spiraling out of control in rebellion and self-inflicted pain. And the grief of Hosea over his wife teaches us about the grief of God. The entire story of Hosea is designed to show the nature of God's love towards those who have been unfaithful to him. The Greek philosophers imagine God as unfeeling, apathetic, but in the Bible, God weeps for his people. He yearns for them. He works for their deliverance. God does not give up. He wants to turn sorrow into joy and the tragedy of unfaithfulness into the triumph of love. I can't imagine what it felt like to be Hosea in this, the hell that must have raged in his heart. Why would God ask me to do this, he must have thought. But God answers his question. You and I, Hosea, we are going to completely give our hearts and lives to those who will reject us. We're going to spend our money and our time, our heart and our energy in going after these people. We're going to throw away our lives in the pursuit of those who have abandoned us in the most painful way possible. Why? Because God is saying, I am a husband whose wife has rejected him. I have children that are rebellious and are killing themselves. By having Hosea take Gomer as his wife, God is showing and telling him as loudly as he can, this is how my heart works. This is how I treat my people who run away from me and who have whored themselves out to other gods. And in calling Hosea to marry Gomer, God is saying, you need to marry this woman to understand whom I've married. You need to marry this one so you can experience the wife I have. Because the shameless idolatry of God's people is just like the shameless adultery of Gomer. And the love of Hosea is just a glimpse of the love of God. Just as much as this book is an indictment of our idolatry, it is a window into the love of God. And I want you to hear David Barnhouse describe this. He writes, The pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe. We leave God in the heat of our own self-desire and run from his will because we want so much to have our own way. We get to a crossroads and look back in pride, thinking we have outdistanced him. Just as we are about to congratulate ourselves on our achievement of self-enthronement, we feel a touch on our arm and turn in that direction and find him there. My child, he says in great tenderness, I love you. And when I saw you running away from all that is good, I pursued you through a shortcut that love knows well and awaited you here at the crossroads. We have torn ourselves free from his grasp and rushed off again through deepest woods and farthest swamp. And as we look back again, we are sure this time that we have succeeded in escaping from him. But once more, the touch of love is on the other sleeve. And when we turn quickly, we find that he is there pleading with the eyes of love and showing himself once more to be the tender and faithful one, loving to the end. He will always say, my child, My name and my nature are love, and I must act according to that which I am. So it is that I have pursued you to tell you that when you're tired of your running and your wandering, I will be there to draw you to myself once more. Everything in the Bible and an experience shows us that God is exactly this way. 
He will give man the trees of the forest and the iron in the, ground, in the ground. Then he will give man the brains to make an axe from the iron, to cut down a tree and fashion it into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. And when man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him, bring him to that cross, and in so doing will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come to him and know the joy of having their sins removed and forgiven, to know the assurance of pardon and eternal life, to enter into the prospect of the hope of glory with him forever. This is who our God is, and there is no one like him. The Bible always holds these two realities together, a damning indictment on our sin and the saving proclamation of God's love. And this brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 opens and we're told that Gomer and her family have begun to worship idols with love cakes of raisins. Love cakes of raisins. What are these? Raisin cakes were the food used in the worship of pagan gods. They would have been the finger food served at pagan orgies. This is what Gomer has been doing. What the first chapters of Hosea show us is that Gomer has slept with everyone. She's a slave to her passions. She can't restrain herself. She's the woman that everyone goes to for short-term relationships. She's easy. She's desperate. And to use the word that the book of Hosea uses, she's a whore. Now, how should love respond to this? Here's our logic. We say, I get it. When I run from God, things get bad. And there's this point where God's going to say, you ran away from me. Aren't you sorry you ran away? And then he gives me whatever penance I have to do to get back into his good graces. I think, well, I'll just have to start going to RUF, or I have to read my Bible more, or I have to pray more. I think I need to do these things to repair what I broke. That's how we think God operates. It seems to be logical, but that's not how God operates. That is not the logic of the gospel. What is God's response to Gomer? He says to Hosea, I want you to go get your wife. Go get the woman who betrayed you and take her back. Why is God doing this with Hosea and Gomer? He is doing this to give us a visceral, historical, living picture of how God relates to us. The book of Hosea is designed so that when we look at Hosea, whose name means salvation, we would think of God. And when we look at Gomer, we would see ourselves. Now, on our own, we imagine that God relates to us mechanically, like a vending machine, that we have to say or do the right things to get God to give us what we want or need, that we need to perform a certain way to get God's blessing. We do this anytime we act good for a religious reason, anytime our service to others or our spiritual life falls under the should category. But Hosea teaches us that God doesn't relate mechanically, but maritally. The metaphor he gives us to make sense of our relationship with him is a marriage. So in chapter 3, Hosea goes to the public auction, and there he finds Gomer, a slave for sale on the auction block. She got herself so far into debt that her only way out was to sell herself into slavery. We now know quite a bit about the selling of slaves in antiquity because so much has been written about it. And one thing that we know for sure is that slaves were always sold naked. Hosea hears of the slave auction. God tells him to go and to buy her. So he goes to the marketplace in Samaria, and there is his beautiful wife, the woman he loved and committed himself to, who mothered his children, and who betrayed him at the deepest possible level. And she's dragged up to the auction block. Her clothes are taken off, and the bidding begins. And she stands there with her eyes squeezed shut, 
Or maybe they're open and they're dull to the world, for she has deadened her soul with years of giving herself away. And she begins to hear the calls of greedy slave buyers. Eleven pieces of silver. Twelve pieces of silver. And then she hears a voice she recognizes. A voice she has avoided and run from. A voice she has rejected and tried to erase from her memory. And that voice rises above the crowd. Thirteen pieces of silver. And the bidding continues until there are just two voices left. Hosea and one other man going back and forth. Fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. Hosea counters, 15 pieces of silver and one and a half bushels of barley. And the other man drops away. The auctioneer listens for one more bid and hearing none says, sold to Hosea for 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. Now at this point, Hosea owned his wife. She was his property. He could do anything he wished to her. If he wanted to kill her out of spite, he could have done it. If he wanted to subject her to years of punishment to have her repay him for the pain she caused, he could have done it. But he did neither of these things because at this point, Hosea's love burns brightest. Instead of seeking vengeance, he put Gomer's clothes on her and led her away from the leering eyes of the crowd. He took her home and he loved her. Here's how he puts it in verse 3. I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man and I will belong to you. And a question you must answer for yourself, does God love you like that? Yes, God loves you like that. God steps into the marketplace of sin and buys us out of sin's bondage with the death of Christ. He gave his life for yours. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does the so mean? For God so loved the world. The answer is Hosea's story. When we see Hosea before the auction block, under orders from God to purchase his wife, who had become an adulteress and a slave, we get a definition of this so. This is the measure of God's love. We are Gomer. We are sold as slaves on the auction block of sin. The world bids for us. The world bids fame, wealth, prestige, influence, power, pleasure, success. All of these things are the world's currency. But when all seemed lost, God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, into the marketplace to buy us at the cost of his life. He bid on us, poor, hopeless, enslaved sinners, with the price of his own blood. And he won us. So we become his, and he took us and clothed us, not with the dirty robes of our unrighteousness, which are filthy rags, but with the clean white robes of his righteousness. And he says to you today, if you're a believer, you are to live with me many days. You must not play the whore, belong to another, and I will live with you. This is how God loves us. This is what Jesus did on your behalf. In closing, I want us to take just a few minutes to think about application. First, we need to see this text in its immediate context. God has orchestrated this pageant for Israel, giving them this audio-visual illustration of his life with them. He wants them to understand their idolatry and how horrible it is and how deeply it hurts him. And then in verse 4 and 5, God tells them, He forecasts what will happen in the future. First, God gives them the prophecy of exile. This is verse 4, that Israel would be exiled from their home as discipline for their spiritual adultery. And this happened. 
In 722 BC, within one generation of Hosea, Samaria was decimated by the Assyrians. And then in verse 5, God promises restoration. Children of Israel shall return, seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Two things going on here I want you to see. First, the language David their king. This is a poetic way of describing the one who sits on David's throne forever, Jesus Christ. And second, latter days. This is the Bible's way of describing the time after Jesus' first coming. His life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and his sending of his spirit. The time after that and before he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So right now, we live in the latter days. Here's what he's saying. There is going to be one who sits on the throne of David, and he is going to restore the relationship between God and his people and heal all that is broken. And do you know how God plans to do this? Do you know how he plans to undo all that is wrong with the world? To heal all that is broken in you? To make death itself work backwards? How he plans to make everything that is sad come untrue? It's right here at the end of verse 3. So will I also be to you. That's a wedding vow. God is going to save the world by marrying his people. Friends, let me end with this. I've been to some great weddings. This is one of the unique perks of my job is that I get to go to weddings and officiate weddings. And hopefully I'll get to do this for some of you one day. But the Bible says that all of our weddings, all of our marriages are at best small little metaphors for the true wedding that is coming at the end of human history. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back for one reason, to marry his church. That's where all of this is going. The truest story of the world is a love story of God and his people. And here's the scandalous thing. This marriage is for the Gomers. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, the way into this story is by seeing yourself, by knowing yourself as a Gomer. See, the cross of Christ is the most beautiful picture of the love of God and It's the greatest indictment of our sin. And the way to know and taste the love of God is by knowing yourself as Gomer, the one he is going to marry. So back to our question at the beginning. In order to answer the question, what am I to do? I must first answer the question, what story am I in? Get the story right and you'll know what to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Hosea. We thank you that you instructed him and he obeyed you to take Gomer as his wife and that we see that this story points beautifully to Jesus Christ, your son who came into this world to save us from our sin so that his bride, the church, might be prepared for the whole, by the Holy Spirit for him for that day when it will descend from heaven like a bride dressed for her husband. And God, you yourself will marry your church. Lord, would you prepare us for that day? Shape our imaginations that we would live out of this true story of the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.